Well, I think the most important thing with investing is you're making sure your money is working for you and you're not working for your money. Welcome to the Immigrant Doctor Podcast, a podcast for financially focused immigrant physicians and other medical professionals looking to learn investing in the U.S. market and achieving financial freedom. Join Avishkar, the immigrant doctor, as he talks to high achievers and go-getters who unravel their journeys, hardships, and successes, helping you to get your financial freedom. To learn more, go to theimmigrantdoctor.com. Hi folks, so I just wanted to give you a heads up that this episode has been divided into two parts just because this was a very long conversation that I had with Shamas and it was a very, very interesting, very fun conversation. Uh, but just because the sheer amount of information that was shared, I feel, you know, I felt that it would be probably better that we divide it into two parts so that I can make bite-sized, uh, you know, chunks of information that you can understand better and grasp these concepts much better. I hope you enjoy this podcast and I look forward to hearing this and then the subsequent episode next week. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Immigrant Doctor Podcast. I have with me uh, an amazing guest today. Uh, his name is Shamaz McGinnis. Did I pronounce your last name right, Shamaz? Yes, you did. McGinnis All is right. a hard one. <laughs> so, you know, it's an interesting story, folks. I met Shamaz at a conference uh, that we both were at, and we were having lunch together. We just happened to be on the same table. I didn't know who this guy was, but... Uh, you know, something about the way he was, he looked pretty laid back, pretty chill. I was like, let me talk to this guy. And uh, we started discussing and he told me that how he's been in the stock market industry for a while. And um, that was something very interesting to me because I know about real estate, but I don't know anything about stocks. And I figured I need to have this guy on my show. So I'll give you a brief introduction about Shamaz. So he's the chief investment officer at uh, ClearTest Advisors. Um, he is an investment banker. He's well-versed in both civil and common law. And, you know, he's held a bunch of licenses uh, through a broker-dealer, which, you know, some of you may know and some of you may not know, uh, like a Series 3 license, Series 7 license, Series 24, Series 34, Series 63, and Series 65. He used to work with... Bear Stearns at Lloyd's of London. And now, like I mentioned, uh, he is the Chief Investment Officer at ClearTrust Advisors. So, Shamaz, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Yeah, you know, it's interesting uh, yeah, how, how you meet uh, different people who are, uh, who are a wealth of knowledge in different uh, aspects and how they can help you gain knowledge about what you want to know. And I think uh, the reason why I wanted to get you on was pretty much because it was a selfish reason. I, I don't know a whole lot about stocks. Um, I think what we can do is we can start with uh, talking about something about, you know, a broader concept of how money works. And, and I think uh, we can probably go into doing some sessions in the future where we talk uh, more about how the stock market works. What do you think? Sounds great to me. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's talk about money. You know, this was something that was very hard for me to grasp because mm -hmm. a lot of times what we think of money is that you earn it and you store it away and you keep some money for a, a rainy day, right? So, so I want to ask you, what's, what's the difference between really investing the money and storing it in the bank? Well, I think the most important thing with investing is you're making sure your money is working for you and you're not working for your money. 
And I think that's the cornerstone of building wealth. Making sure your money works for you. You know, but it comes with this mindset of, um, you know, you're investing your money, but it's at risk, right? Even though you're, Mm. theoretically, it sounds like uh, you're investing your money and you're making it work for you. But at the same time, that money is not sitting in your bank. And I think it requires a little bit of a shift of mindset. Um, Mm. And do you you experience that with your clients when they come and talk to you? All the time. All the time. You know, the... This concept of risk is so difficult to to manage, and I think every day it becomes more difficult to manage because you know what's happening today with the Chinese yuan or however you pronounce it, and and oil. You you yeah. never know what you're standing on, yeah, and and then we're taught to be to think that certain things are risky just because but we're not giving a solid reason why it's risky, you know? So we'll deposit our money in a bank and then that bank will go do exactly what we're told not to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> they invest their money. So, so let's talk about how the money works. You know, how, how does this work? And I think that's going to be an eye opener for, for all of us uh, is how does the bank use our money? Where does the, where does the money go in the bank? Well, I mean, most banks today are, are investing in mortgage-backed securities. So they're trading it in derivatives. You know, what happened with SBB and and different banks. All the banks are trading and playing with money. And uh, how they work it is usually they they wrap mortgages and then they Mm -hmm. sell those mortgages and then they wrap it again and it's called a synthetic, right? So they wrap one mortgage 20, 30 times to create liquidity. Oh, wow. And that's where they get their massive leverage. So, so it's like a, they gift wrap a mortgage and they give it to another bank and then they, uh-huh. they gift wrap it again and then they give it to mm-hmm. another bank. Is that how it goes? Yeah, yeah, it's called you know a referenced portfolio. Yeah. Interesting. It, it's so who's finally scary. paying for this? Who's finally paying? I mean, somebody that money's got to go somewhere. Who's finally paying? What? what it's, this is this is so interesting. What's going on here? Yeah, I don't know what's going on. I mean, every day it's it's more insane because on top of that, what they're doing today, which is new since two thousand and eight, is they do that and then they sell that note to the U.S. government, right? I and, see. And so, they called it so finally, the U.S. government is paying for it. Yeah, they called it quantitative easing. Interesting. Can you can you explain a little more about how this goes and just so that um, all of us can understand? I know um, that you have you know this background in finance, but uh, but for some somebody like me, I, I don't understand uh, you know all of this uh, uh, whatever the terms that you're using. Can you just explain it you know simplify it a little bit for us? Okay. So and and coach me if I I miss something, but a a, more, a normal bank goes and they lend to someone to buy a house, right? And right. that's their core business. Previously to 2008, that's when the US government would print new money. So they would okay. print money and that's how the increase in money supply would happen as the bank would lend to someone to buy a okay. house. So since 2008, um, what they started doing was 
printing those things and then the and then wrapping them and then selling them to the to the Federal Reserve, which never happened before. And so they would just and, and they call that a note that or a derivative, okay. right? They would get, you know, a, a billion dollars worth of notes or, or okay. mortgages, wrap okay. a contract around it. Does wrapping okay. make sense? Like they would say this por this portfolio of a thousand mortgages is referenced on this note, and then they would sell that note to the U.S. government or the Federal Reserve, more appropriately. So why was the Federal Reserve buying it then? Well, <laughs> yeah, that's where it gets really <laughs> juicy. Um, before that, um, it was sold to regular investors like you and me, and it was sold okay. to pension funds and and even retail investors would go and buy notes and sure. it was great oh you're investing in a triple a backed note from goldman sachs or bear stearns or jp sure. morgan and they kept doing this and this is how the banks started getting massive amounts of liquidity got it and they got a lot of people talk in the the subprime debacle that oh well it was the pole dancers and the waiters and it's interesting to me because the subprime mortgages even to this day even when they started defaulting is the best paying segment of the u.s economy global economy really for some reason poor people pay their debts better than uh, <laughs> yeah and so my question was always, well, how, how can you explain to me that the poorest people in the U.S. bankrupted the whole world? Right, right. So what happened was they created synthetics. And a synthetic okay. is they have a reference portfolio of mortgages and they sell it more than once. And they were selling like 50 times. I guess there's even rumors oh, wow. of 70 times over. Interesting. So the the default rate in in uh, pre two thousand and eight was less than one percent. That's why it was qualified as AAA security. Got it. Got and it. so they referenced that portfolio twenty five, thirty times over on all these notes where they were raising massive amounts of capital and then doing what with it? I don't know. They weren't investing in in uh, more mortgages. There's not right. enough mortgages to invest like that. And I see. When something went wrong, and even the default, say it went up 300%, then you're talking 3% right. default rate on the, the, the mortgages? That's nothing. It's a really good rate. Right. But wherever they put that money or wherever that money was taken, then it was lost or stolen i don't know what happened <laughs> and then somebody had, did something wrong then there was a big huge trouble and uh the us government had to step in and i think it relates back to the you know equal housing act it it created this um, what is that moral hazard where the bank said oh we can lend anywhere we can do anything and since the government told us we had to do it, 
well, now they have to bail us out. You know, and that's, now it gets kind of weird. So I let people think what they want to think. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in in a nutshell, basically, the way the banks work is, you say take a loan from the bank for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, say I go and take a loan. They arbitrage because they're asking me for an interest rate on it. Mm-hmm. So it's like they give me the money now. They lend me the money now with a promise to pay in the future. Mm-hmm. And they're arbitraging that uh, with an interest rate. So that's where they make their money, right? Yeah. And um, so obviously the money is not just sitting in the bank. The moment it hits our account, it reflects as a number on when I'm looking at my account. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's sitting there. They've already invested my money somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and so, but um, and so, what they're doing is, even if they say that they're going to give me an X Y Z percent interest annually on the amount that I put in the in the bank, um, it's basically a very puny amount compared to what they're making as an interest on the investments that they have made uh, from my money that's sitting in the bank. Exactly. And from what I'm understanding is that basically. They say, for example, somebody takes a mortgage, they would put a nice wrap around it, and then they would sell it to somebody else who would be willing to pay a higher premium uh, because it was a better, you know, because their investment uh, uh, ideology was different and they were looking at it from a, and from a different perspective than what the bank would be looking at it. Like. Exactly. And, and so they would make their money there because... It's not. It's not just about the returns. It's also about the investment uh, philosophy of whether you're looking for a low return, you know, more safe investment versus a higher return, a slightly riskier investment. And I think that's that's my understanding is what wrapping would be. Am I correct in understanding that's that? That's a hundred percent right. And I'm sure you're more articulate than I am. So. <laughs> Folks, I just wanted to remind you, if you haven't done that already, head on over to www.theimmigrantdoctor.com. I have created a free video resource for you guys. It's a small course that I've created on investing in real estate. It's not very extensive, but it just gives you a flavor of what investing in real estate looks like um, so that you can get started, get more comfortable with the terms around real estate and get more comfortable with some of the facets of real estate. So go to www.theimmigrantdoctor.com to download this free resource. So, so in, es- in essence, what I'm understanding is that money keeps moving, right? Mm. So money doesn't stay. And so, so why is this movement of money important? I mean, we can just put our money into the bank account and then the bank can just store it. Like, I, I thought that was the whole purpose of how this banking system came about. So why do we need to keep moving this money around in the, in the financial market? Well, liquidity is what enables us to realize our, our gains. You know, like if you go to Europe, you have properties that have been passing down for, you know, five, ten generations, 500 years, thousand years. And it's it's worthless. The property is worthless. You know, you can't sell it. You can't do anything with it. Some of these towns are just like they don't even work anymore. Interesting. And so the government is sponsoring people to go live in these towns. <laughs> I know, yeah, because in Italy, I think they're giving you a dollar to buy. <laughs> you, you, you can buy a property for a dollar. That was just crazy when I saw that online. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, and my wife is Spanish, and like, there's even offers like to pay you $10,000 to go live in a town. It's <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. yeah. So, so it's in a sense the 
uh, it's important to understand that the movement of money is important, mm. not just storing it somewhere. That's not doing anything for mm. anybody. As long as it, the money keeps moving and keeps changing hands, that's how the economy works. And that's how we make our money and everybody else makes their money. Yeah. Right? And that's the, the genius idea of the exchange, right? Where the exchange is where you have market makers and you have people interchanging value for for stocks and this creates a huge liquidity you know mm. and everything is in there not just companies but mortgages right um are in there everything you can think of commodities currencies and as that moves that gives us you know, a great amount of liquidity to buy homes and sell homes buy uh, commercial property and sell commercial property. It's all because of that exchange of money. You know? Right, right. And I think it's also interesting to understand that that's where this whole concept of leverage comes in because if you're storing money away to buy something later uh, versus if you're using leverage, say from a bank, for example, a mortgage to buy it, you're able to move a whole lot faster mm. uh, reaching your goals. Now, whether you're using that uh, loan to buy assets or liabilities is a different, completely different question. Right. But I think if you're using that to buy whatever you're buying, you're moving a whole lot faster in whatever direction you're moving in um, than, uh, you know, versus just storing the money and then using it at a later date. Yeah, and that's what's beautiful about leverage. Leverage can be extremely dangerous, but it also can be a fail-safe. Like you can use right. leverage to protect yourself against risk, right. you know, because you can, right. like in investing, you, you know about cost averaging, right? right? So if you go into a position very conservatively and then it moves against you, you can cost average down and yep. you have plenty of liquidity not to worry about margin calls, not to worry about, oh, I can't cost average. So leverage is an extremely powerful tool that can help you both conserve your wealth and and position yourself as well as if you're stupid and greedy then right you know <laughs> you can blow up and then you're all you lose everything <laughs> yeah, well uh, you know the other thing is uh, interesting concept about money is uh, the way we talk about it getting devalued over time <laughs> i think it was this crazy cool. crazy thing that i read somewhere um that or somebody was talking about it that we've the dollar has lost what 90 percent of its value in the last 40 years yeah or 50 something years, like that something like that it's something yeah. insane yeah yeah how, how's money getting devalued like what does that even mean well i think we're at an accelerated rate might be even worse than that over these last um since 2008 but you print more of it than then it's worth less, right? Right, right. And the only way to really resolve that issue is, for me, I'm a money supply, or a, a supply side economist person. Okay, what does that mean? I have no idea so, what that means. What is a supply that, side economist? Yeah, I'm stumbling over my words, so. Um, but there's Keynesian economics where they think that the supply of money creates more commerce and you just keep printing money and that's every economy has been doing that since World War II. Okay. 
Now, the other concept, classical economics, is where if you build it, people will need it. If you innovate okay. and you make something more amazing, then people will want that. And so the more you right. build something and the more economical you can build it, the more people will buy it. And then you, you can create a deflationary environment. And, okay. And deflation is a beautiful thing. Like a lot of people are terrified of it. And I, I don't, right. I think that's a government thing, not to be a conspiracy theorist. Okay. But the GDP, the government always wants the GDP to grow. And if you put some inflation right. in there, it's going to grow. <laughs> right. Whereas if things devalue, right, they, they lose right. how much they cost to buy, deflationary, right. then more people have access to it. That's true. And I think it always moves in cycles, right? Um, the economy always moves uh, into an inflation phase and then goes into a deflation phase. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would just, I, you know, I would, be, I would be very curious to know what your thoughts would be with respect to the Japanese market. Because mm-hmm. I read this also at some, some place that the Japanese market, the, the inflation rate is like very low mm-hmm. and it stayed really low. Yeah. So, so how does that contrast to the, the U.S. market and what does that mean to us as investors? Yeah, that's that's a head scratcher there. They're our largest investor, right? They own more treasury bonds, I think like 15% or something like that. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, and then after them is is China, which Okay. I believe Japan has 50% more treasuries than China does. Like Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so even at even at that global level, the money is still moving. It's not like just restricted to the American economy and what people are doing only in the U.S. But it's like this global investment that's mm-hmm. occurring into the U.S. as well, and vice versa. Yeah, that's occurring. Yeah, I mean, Japan is an extremely interesting um, market. I follow it. Um, because they were the first country really to do the quantitative easing and they failed at it. It caused their huge slowdown and they overprinted money and they've been dealing with that for the last, since the sixties. And, and, um, now there's a lot of talk like, Oh, they're printing money and they're doing this and, I can't follow it exactly because it doesn't track when you go and look at the actual statistics okay. in uh, the Bank of Japan. They don't track with the news that you hear and read. So I'm not sure how that whole thing works. But what I do believe is that since the interest rates are so cheap, all of the global investors are getting their loans via the Japanese yen. Be- oh, interesting. Yeah. And so there's tons of speculation happening on the Japanese yen on top of that. And these big defaults and losses that have happened over the last year, I think because the the short sellers and the speculators on the yen are, are getting hammered. I see. Okay, yeah. so there is some amount of speculation because I'm as an investor, I, I don't invest in speculation, mm-hmm. uh, but I guess some of some people do invest in speculation. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, speculation is an interesting term, right? If you look it up in the dictionary. Yeah. Right? Because commerce is considered speculation. But when, but when we, <laughs> That's interesting. But when we go to the market, speculation is like gambling, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's my worldview of speculation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, what about this, uh, you know, this debt that is ever increasing? You turn on the news channels and, you know, there's this, always this something about, oh, the national level debt has gone up to this many trillion and that many trillion. It's, I mean, as it is, these trillions of dollars are hard to comprehend numbers. But what does this mean for people who are investing in the U.S.? Um, and why is this important to us? Well, for me, it's a huge problem because I don't fund the fundamentals are super hard to follow with all of the the printing of money since we're printing money at a scale that we've never done before right I think sure. we, in 2020 we printed what was it like 60% of the money supply in one year oh wow oh wow and just blew up and and that statistic it might be worse than that I can't remember it's been a few years so you, sure. you can uh, research that, everyone can. But it's an insane amount of money was printed, and it, they okay. just keep printing it. Like uh, we've raised the interest rates, and banks are, are failing because they bought long-term debt and, right. or long-term treasuries. And yet, here we go, printing money again to save the banks what what does that cause you know how how can we gauge where we're at when when we don't have failures when we need failure we need to see who what, what did warren buffett say when the water goes out you see who's swimming naked <laughs> i don't know that quote this is the first time i've only i've only heard when there's bloodshed on the streets right <laughs> that's when you go and buy <laughs> yeah so but yeah you we're not actually seeing the problems which is a, a shame for me you know like the free marketplace when you when everything blows up i i grew up you know without running water or light so i came from right when the whole world blows up and there's a huge economic meltdown, the poor people don't know. Nothing changes for them. It's like the same. Right. But when you have massive fallouts in property and, and you see the real devaluation or deflation that needs to happen in the market, that's when lower class people or people with less money have an opportunity. Because if you have a $500,000 house and then all of a sudden it's $100,000, people who could Not never buy, buy that house are going to buy it. And, and we don't have that natural ebb and flow in the market. We're just, we just keep bailing out the big people and the middle and lower class just, be, just become poorer and poorer. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. But then... But then, how how do we as investors take take advantage of these cycles that occur? Well, like that saying you said, uh, when there's blood in the streets, even when it's your own, make sure you buy. 
<laughs> yeah. I think right now we're in a huge, amazing time because I don't know how far the Federal Reserve can go this time to bail out the banks. Right now, they are bleeding out because all these commercial mortgages are coming due or their, their arm loans are going to start becoming variable and they're not going to be able right. to afford. And this is fallout from 2008 where right. they got bailed out, they got quantitative easing so they didn't have to auction off all their properties. They, they held them, mm. they grew, and then they slowly sold them off through this big boom. Now they're, they're not, I don't think the reserve is going to be able to bail them out. And those interest rates. Um, Shamas, just for our listeners, just so that they understand, can you just explain yeah. um, what, what it means to, for the arm loan to become variable? Yeah, everybody knows variable loans, right? With their arm loans, the residential right. type arm loan is seven years. So commercial arm loans are usually around 10 years. Seven to ten years, right. but generally ten years, and the first three years are fixed. Okay. And then on the third year, what happens is then they go with uh, the going rates, you know, plus okay, plus whatever I don't know two percent something like that plus, sure. and and so they they go up or down. So if you have depending on the market. yeah if you have this these two percent commercial loans that were out there all of a sudden they're going to be paying seven percent six point five percent these these properties the commercial properties and and multifamily units are just going to get hammered for right. these big time banks and everyone and and there's I don't think there's anything that the Federal Reserve can do and they'll have to start selling them. Yeah, I think it was an interesting thing that I was reading somewhere uh, yesterday. Somebody had actually posted a summary of an article they read somewhere about, I think, what, $20 trillion of debt is coming due in 2025. Wow. And it's going to default. Again, these are all such huge numbers. I, I, I cannot validate the source of the, this information and I don't know if it's real or not, but I would imagine that this would be real just because of the way the economy works and the way um, the last uh, few years, everybody's been on a buying spree of all these properties. And when their loans come due, um, you know, it's gonna be a, a big mess and a big opportunity. And that's, that's what everybody has been talking about as well right now is that this is coming like this is going to be when wealth is going to shift hands yeah how exciting i hope that a lot of entrepreneurs and middle and lower class people who are hungry and want to move forward in their lives can take advantage of this time that's coming folks um some of my guests may actually have uh, you know some mentorship programs they may have some deals that they're working on and uh, you might get interested in working with them. But uh, please bear in mind that I haven't done any due diligence on what they are offering. Um, and you should do your own due diligence before you start working with them. Having said that, you know, these are very high quality guests that I'm trying to bring on so that they can provide good value to you. And, you know, they're hardworking individuals and they have uh, integrity when they work. But you should definitely do your own due diligence 
Um, I I haven't done that due diligence on um, you know what their programs are, what their deals are. Um, so please do your due diligence. Um, I don't want to be held liable for anything that they are offering and you join that program or that deal with them uh, because you heard it on my podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Immigrant Doctor Podcast. If you would like to learn more, head to www.theimmigrantdoctor.com. See you again soon on another episode and another amazing journey.